This is the Apex United Methodist Church podcast. Uh, so I want to begin this morning by offering some wisdom from perhaps uh, an unlikely place. So let's, let's, let's look. The first one, when life gets you down, do you want to know what you got to do? Just keep swimming. That's from Dory in Finding Nemo. The next one. Sometimes you got to get through your fear to see the beauty on the other side from the good dinosaur. The next one. You must not let anyone define your limits because of where you come from. A ratatouille. Next one. You've got a friend in me, Randy Travis, but through Toy Story. <laughs> and the last one, which is probably my favorite. Greater good, I'm your wife. I'm the greatest good you're ever going to get. Honey to Frozone and the Incredibles. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, also, Georgia Meckes to Doug, front seat of Pew. <laughs> uh, my family loves Pixar. Uh, we love going to the movies. My wife and I, in fact, uh, used to attend Pixar movies before we had kids. Uh, we'd go every time a new movie opened uh, to see it in the theaters, uh, typically on opening uh, weekend. Uh, now that we have kids, uh, we still go uh, quite frequently. Uh, my wife and I think having kids is a great excuse for us to still go to the theater and watch Pixar movies. And often in Pixar movies, one of the reasons I believe uh, they are so popular and well-liked is that they address uh, many things, uh, both on the surface in our lives as well as some depth of wisdom uh, that comes to us often through unlikely voices. Uh, one, of the, one of the themes that you often see uh, in these movies and one of the reasons we love uh, taking our kids uh, to see them is that as the characters face adversity, uh, they face challenges, they face uh, twists and turns in their own stories. Uh, sometimes because of inside, uh, things happening inside of them, uh, things like greed or pride or arrogance or selfishness. Sometimes from things outside of them, things they can't control, uh, simply adversity or change in their culture or environment. That in all these cases, one of the ways that those writers bring them together is they show the lead characters overcoming those things, joining together with their family or their friends or their partners or their community. And in that joining together, uh, they are able to overcome uh, whatever life brings them. Uh, now I will tell you, we went and watched Incredibles 2 yesterday, which is part of why Pixar is fresh on my mind. And as we were sitting there in the theaters, and I promise I won't give any of it away if you're still going to go, uh, we once again saw this theme arise to the surface. Uh, things like greed and arrogance and selfishness and uh, all the sin that life brings led towards disarray and disconnectedness and, all, and ultimately uh, putting the world of the Incredibles at risk. And once again, as they gathered toward the end, they recognized that it was only through using their unique gifts in this case, superpowers, uh, that they were able to come together and once again overcome uh, the adversity that was in front of them. It was in this unity, in this community, in this joining together uh, as a family and as a group of supers that they were able to move forward uh, and to continue uh, 
uh, in the purpose they felt like they had been created for. Now, this has been a theme in Pixar for uh, the entire time that I've been watching movies, from Toy Story in 1995. That was their very first, uh, all the way till today. And I like to believe that the Pixar authors, the writers, uh, may have been reading Philippians when they were writing these scripts. Now, that may not be true. It is likely not true, but I like to believe it, that they're reading this ancient wisdom of Paul uh, from 2,000 years ago. Uh, This wisdom where Paul looks at God's people, God's uniquely created people, and challenges them to a new kind of ethic, a new way of seeing, a new behavior that's linked to the character of Christ, linked to Jesus. And it's in that that he offers them practical advice to help lead them towards God's purposes. So as we read this morning, uh, we're going to read Philippians, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So I invite you to open with me in Philippians chapter 2. We'll begin with verse 12. Once again, Paul himself is facing challenges. Uh, Paul is likely in prison. Uh, Paul is waiting trial, uh, perhaps a trial for his life. And as he waits, he looks at this church, uh, this young church, that's still trying to figure out what's next and, and wondering what the future may hold. And as he looks at this church, he first, as we looked at last week, appoints them to Jesus, the person of Jesus, who Jesus is, the character of Jesus. And then out of the character of Jesus, he leads them and challenges them uh, to a new way of being. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, Just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. It is by your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a libation over the sacrifice and the offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And in the same way, you also must be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our scripture this morning uh, begins with a very important word for Paul. Uh, And the word is therefore. Now, if you are someone who loves language and loves reading and and books, you often ask, at least I was in high school when I was studying English, uh, that if there is a therefore, you have to ask, what is the therefore therefore? Well, the therefore is therefore. (laughs) It is there for Paul to connect these two ideas. Paul, in the verses prior, verses 5 through 11, and really all the way back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, is laying out a philosophical and theological ethic about what it means to look and live like Jesus. He's pointing to the person of Jesus and talking about the character of Jesus, of the one who, although had every right to sit at the right hand of God the Father, had every privilege and power in the kingdom of God, had every ability to move forward above this earth, chose uh, to empty himself, kenosis, 
to pour himself out on our behalf to humble himself even in the form of a slave. And Paul ties these ideas together to what it means to live as God's people. And so when he says, therefore, what he's saying is, I'm going to connect this philosophical and theological idea to how we live and behave in the world. For that is what we have talked about for the last several weeks, this idea of integrity. Taking our mind and our heart and connecting it to our behavior. So Paul says, therefore, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence. We've heard that language before. We heard it in chapter 1, verse 27, when Paul says, whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you. Again, Paul is calling them to consistency of character, uh, to a life that is the same, whether Paul is with them or away from them. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. As Paul connects these ideas, he talks, about, talks to God's people, to the church, and says, I want you to begin to work this way. Work toward salvation. Now salvation in this case, the root word of salvation is salve, like a healing ointment, which means to heal, to make whole. So I want you to work towards being healed and made whole, to, to look more like Jesus. And for Paul, it really was work. Uh, John Wesley uh, was one who agreed with Paul in this respect. Uh, John Wesley believed that it took discipline. It took methods, methodology, Methodist, that's where it comes from. It took practice and discipline every day to work towards becoming more like Jesus, becoming more whole. For Wesley, he got up earlier and earlier every day throughout his life until he was getting up at three in the morning to spend three to four hours in prayer every day. Now, you guys are our early birds, so you're already here at least by 8.15, which means I know that you've been up for three or four hours already praying this morning. But that was Wesley's discipline. That was his work. That was his ethic, that he began to work toward becoming more like Jesus. Not because we ourselves can earn that, not because we ourselves can make ourselves holy. In fact, he's clear about that in verse 13, when he says, for it is God who is at work in you. Both Wesley and Paul believe that by experiencing God, God then can change us. God can work in us and therefore enabling us to both will and to work for God's good pleasure. Uh, last week at annual conference, or I guess it was two weeks ago now, I had a chance to hear Bishop Jonathan Holston preach a sermon on that Thursday night when we gathered. Uh, Bishop Holston is the resident bishop in South Carolina. He's from Mississippi. And he shared uh, this sermon where he had this line he came back to over and over again. Once again, I believe connecting to these verses in Philippians. When he said, the purpose of God's church is not for your pleasure. It's for God's purposes. The church isn't here for your pleasure. It's for God's purposes. And that really is the shift that Paul's making. When Paul talks about the work that we do, when he talks about the lives that we lead, he's consistently turning us, particularly in the church in Philippi, away from the things that make us happy, away from consumerist ethic, to a place where we are pouring ourselves out like Jesus poured himself out. Where we are considering others better than ourselves, where we are inverting uh, the culture and becoming countercultural in a way that everything we do is not about us, but it's about God. 
And the way that we're able to do that is because we lean in close to God, we come and encounter God, and through God's work in our lives, God changes us. God turns us. God uh, reverses the sin that's in us, a sin that is bent on arrogance and selfishness and pride and greed, and instead turns us away from a self-centric idea of living and turns us to seeing God and seeing others. He says, when we do that, this is what happens. Verse 14. He says, then do all things without murmuring and arguing. Now, we'll pause right there. Now, that's great advice. But I don't know about you, but this is one of the things that as I read Paul, I struggle with the most. And I simply look at my relationships and I say, I would like to do all things without murmuring and arguing. I would like to do all things without Uh, being in conflict with those that I love. I'm also celebrating 15 years of marriage this summer. I have learned and I've known from the beginning that it is not not only not possible, but not healthy uh, to not be in, uh, let's say, genial disagreement sometimes (laughs) with those that we love. And really, if you look at the character of Paul, if you look at the ethic of Paul, Paul is one that never shied away from a debate. Uh, When it came to debate, when it came to debating the things that really mattered, Paul would go all out to share Paul's opinion, but to always root it in humility and always root it in a God-centered ethic. When we dug deeper this week on these two words, murmuring and arguing, uh, there's two words that actually came up for them. A murmuring in Greek is actually the word gagismos. Do you have that up there, Simon? Okay, we'll get it next time. Gagismos which is spelled G-O-G-G-Y-S-M-O-S. And in Scripture, when we look at this word, uh, gagismos, it means gossip. It's used to talk about when we talk about people, not to people. So murmuring is actually the, the active practice of gossiping. It is turning away from healthy conversation and healthy talking to to talking about. And so basically when Paul was saying, do all things without murmuring, he's saying, don't leave and talk about someone over here. Don't gossip. Don't do practices that create divisiveness rather than unity. Similarly, with the word arguing, the word in Greek is dialogismos, D-I-A-L-O-G-I-S-M-O-S, which is about an inward conversation. Arguing in this case is that we become argumentative, we become a people that are so interested in our own opinion uh, that we don't see the opinion of others. In fact, the Strong's Concordance defines this word this way. It says, the reasoning of those who think themselves to be wise. When we are argumentative, we are more interested in ourselves being right and our opinion being verified uh, than we are about having a healthy dialogue and healthy debate that might move towards wholeness, salvation, health salvation, and looking more like Jesus together. One of the things that I get a chance to do uh, often as a pastor is get to walk with people as they're preparing for marriage. As people prepare for marriage, one of the lessons that we do every time is we go through a conversation on how to fight well. And what I tell young couples is I tell them that one of the guarantees that I will give you as you are moving through this preparation for life together is that you will fight. I promise you that. The trick to being in healthy relationship is learning how to fight well, how to fight in ways that move you closer to the relationship God wants for you 
and not apart from each other. A few weeks ago, I shared a book called Crucial Conversations. And Crucial Conversation talks about this inner dialogue that we have. Uh, this uh, narrative that moves in our mind when we engage in conversation that shapes how we have debate, how we have disagreement. And Crucial Conversation says when conversations go poorly, they go poorly because we enter a conversation with the wrong end game in mind. The authors say that if we were to go into a debate and we saw the whole purpose of disagreement to actually draw us closer together as a couple and move us forward, then the the nature of the argument might be different. But if we go into the conversation with the idea that the whole purpose of this conversation is to make sure I'm right and you're wrong, then we move to tearing each other apart rather than drawing each other together. And so they ask a question. And the question they say that we have to ask every time we go into conversation is, why am I disagreeing? What is the purpose of this disagreement? Is the purpose of this disagreement somehow to build myself up, to make myself look better, to make myself look stronger? Or is the purpose of this disagreement somehow to draw us together for some common purpose? In this case, in Paul's case, to draw us together towards God's purposes, to lead us to be a people who in all things that we do move us closer to looking collectively like the people of God. I use another book. Actually, it's a study from the Gottman Institute, and it's a study that talks about uh, these four horsemen of disagreement. And I share this with couples all the time. There are four words. These are really the four rules uh, that you do not want to engage in when you're fighting. So these are not good things. Uh, Four horsemen reference the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So these are bad things. Uh, But these are the four things the Gottman Institute says. When we engage in these things, it leads to division and brokenness. The first one is criticism. The second one is contempt. The third one is defensiveness. And the fourth one is stonewalling. And the Gottman Institute says when they watch a couple fight, they would actually put a couple in a room, and they would have them have an argument, and they would watch them. And they would tell you within three minutes, I can tell you whether or not this couple will be married 10 years from now. It was all based on these practices. If the couple will continue to use practices to create division rather than unity, so I can tell you what the future of their relationship looks like 10 years from now. And this is what Paul is arguing for. Paul is suggesting that as we disagree, we must disagree in a healthy way that leads us towards unity, that requires humility, and in that humility and unity leads us towards God's purposes uh, together. Uh, this past week, we were doing sermon planning with our pastors, and, and Pastor Owen on our 509 campus uh, used this quote uh, that I thought was super helpful for us. It was simply this. He says, humility breeds unity. Arrogance breeds isolation. Humility breeds unity. Arrogance breeds isolation. And this is the ethic Paul is trying to invert again throughout uh, this letter. So he continues. Verse 14. He goes on to actually, verse, we'll go to verse 16. He says, It is by your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a libation over the sacrifice and the offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you also must be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul says it begins with humility. 
It continues with disagreeing well, with finding ways to be in relationship without murmuring and arguing. And then ultimately, the, the, the last piece of this for Paul in this section is that we are to be a people who rejoice well. He says, Even if I'm being poured out as a libation of the sacrifice and offering your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you also must be glad and rejoice with me. For Paul, rejoicing, joy, is actually an active, an active resistance. So you got to remember, Paul is in jail. He's in jail by the Roman Empire, a Roman Empire who's trying to crush his voice, who's trying to slow down his message, who's trying to make sure the people of God are not continuing to spread this gospel where Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And so they use tactics like fear and oppression and death and and crucifixion to, to tamp down a message. And Paul's response to that constantly is a response of joy. While Paul's in prison, Paul says, I rejoice. While Paul faces death, Paul says, I rejoice because the gospel is moving. God's people are being changed. This world is being transformed. And and so he celebrates. He celebrates regardless of the narrative going around around him. You know, one thing that that we do sometimes at the house is we'll watch the news in the evenings. And and, and often, I I don't love to listen to the news. I mean, I, I don't mind it. I don't love it. Partly because it's so easy to be drawn into all the negative stories that are happening around us. All the destruction, all the the lies, all the arrogance, all the brokenness that's happening around our world. And as the news narrates these things, it might be easy to forget all the good, all the joy, all the love, all the celebration. It's, It's easy to pull those things apart. And if we get trapped in the one, we can forget the other. I was with a church member earlier this week, and, and as we were sitting there talking about uh, what it meant to be God's, what it meant to be God's church, uh, we celebrated. We celebrated that this past week we had 20 of our uh, young people and adults in the Bahamas uh, helping repair homes, roofs on houses. We celebrated the fact that this church five times a year provides housing for homeless. We celebrated the fact that we have a garden that feeds those who are hungry. We celebrated all the lives that are being changed from the very smallest to the very oldest. How we are diving into scripture together, worshiping together, the gifts that are being used to build up God's body. And in celebrating, we are reminded that with all the trouble in this world, there is still so much good. God is still moving. The gospel is still moving. God's people are still moving. And in the movement of God's people, we rejoice. The language Paul uses here is this language of his own life being poured out as a libation over an offering. Paul says, even my own life, I'll set aside for, the, for this offering of God's people, this, this transformation of God's church to smell sweet to God. It's actually a reference uh, to an Old Testament practice where wine was being poured out on a burnt offering. And when wine is poured out on a burnt offering, it created this aroma that they imagined was wafting up to God that created this sweet smell. And Paul was saying, I pour out my own life. I set aside my own life. I set aside all that I am so that the offering of God's people might smell sweet to God. What an ethic. What a behavior. What a change in someone's life that we might see our own life as a way to make the offering of others smell sweeter to God. Uh, this morning, I'm going to close uh, with a few challenges. The first is simply a reminder that Jesus' posture, Jesus' ethic that we read last week, 
in verses 5 through 11 is an ethic of humility. An ethic of setting outside all privilege and power and position for the sake of the other. Therefore, because this was Jesus' character, as we are a people joined together, we are to fight well. When we debate, when we argue, uh, we have to ask key questions. Questions like, what's at stake? What's most important? What is God's purposes here? And how might we find ways to come together for a greater good? Secondly, how can our lives lift others up? How can our lives be poured out in such a way that, that people around us might be seen, might be known, might be celebrated? And third, how are we rejoicing well this week? What stories are we telling? How are we telling stories in our neighborhood, in our families, in our homes, in our communities? Are the stories we're telling leading people to celebrate the work of God or pointing people to the sin and brokenness of our culture? How does the language that we use, how does the conversations we have on social media, in our living rooms, at lunch, how do those people either point to the goodness of God or to the brokenness of our world? What we point to is ultimately where we go. It's where we live. It's how we lead. And I invite us to be people who lead with rejoicing. This morning I'm going to close uh, with again reading this passage from Philippians chapter 2. And as we've said most weeks, I want us to hear this as a letter for us. Hear this as a letter for our church and our time for us as we try to live faithfully out of God's call. Hear these words from Paul. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and arguing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. It is by your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast in the day of Christ that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a libation over the sacrifice and the offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And in the same way, you also must be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God.